You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A'uz billahi minash shaitan rajim Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. You're joined by myself, Raheel Ahmed, and Fahim Nasser. Fahim Nasser. Assalamu alaikum, brother. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Alhamdulillah. All well. So, as always, uh, we're back with two important topics uh, that we'll be discussing today. In the first hour, we're discussing uh, the NHS crisis, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, the nurses undervalued in the UK. And in the second hour, we'll be discussing ISIS, whether they are still a threat. So going into the first hour, um, Fahim, I mean, of course, we always begin with, um, we try to, um, with yeah. the with the injunctions of the Holy Quran and, and, and what Islam has to say. So, um, you know, in chapter 16, verse 91, um, mm-hmm. Allah the Almighty says, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished you that you may take heed. Now, the UK UK's National Health Service, known as NHS, is is you know we are aware for their services that 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 they provide to help patients. Um, yeah, we're very blessed to have their. Of course, right? yeah. When we think about it, and of course, we're going to discuss this further, mm. um, and comparing it to, let's say, you know, the USA, because I, I, I was literally seeing how much it costs just to call an ambulance yeah. in the UK. There's someone who's doing an interview on the, the streets. Yeah, that video I've seen there. Yeah, so uh, you know, um, astonishing figures. If you think about it, but the the, the NHS, just a bit of history, uh, those that don't know, was introduced in 1948 mm. and was uh, intended to cover most medical bills to, uh, you know, so that those who, who were living in poverty or were, let's say, uninsured could be treated. Uh, healthcare is is available for everyone in the UK, you know, without any cost for treatments. Um, the, U- the NHS provides doctors and nurses with job security and, and of course, great progression. And experience opportunities. Um, you know, this you you could argue that you know that that's not the case now. But mm. um, you know, this this was the intention behind you know setting up the NHS. Yep. However, a large scale nationalized healthcare system actually means that there are many people to cater to, and so there are many limitations as well as strengths. Mm. Um, and this also means that many doctors and nurses are are under a lot of pressure. And dealing with a lot of a lot more patients, uh, uh, patients with, with with actually less staff, yeah. um, and and in recent months, especially, there has been an increase in talks regarding privatization of the NHS, and this has led to a debate where you know whether or not this would actually be beneficial for the NHS and for the people you know yeah. at large. Um, so stay tuned as we discuss the pros and cons of privatization. Of the NHS, but before we do that, we do want to uh, for him to speak about the nurses' strikes. Yeah, are you? I mean, before going into the topic, the strikes that we're seeing, you know, uh, from various unions. 
Of course. Uh, do you agree with it or do you disagree with it? Me personally? Yeah. I find I find this really tough question because yeah. especially with the the it's the type of job, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that they do especially it's it's lives depend on it. Yeah. But then yeah, this I I feel like Mm-hmm. It's come after a lot of frustration, a lot of trying other ways. So yeah, for me, I feel like it's it's um, something that I can completely sympathize with and understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they definitely deserve more money for what they do, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, if you think about it, how many of <clears throat> anybody listen to this show? Tell me, like, how easy would you find it if your day-to-day job was to look after people who are sick, mm-hmm. who are in really difficult and and think about it, right? In <clears throat> when whenever your family member or your kids or you know a friend is sick, how how much does their personality change, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's this whole man flu that people talk about as well. Yeah. Like, think about the types of people that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Absolutely. So I think that yeah. For me, um, personally, I think that they need more money, and and this is the result that they've kind of had to come to. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's probably the last resort, isn't it, mm. um, for them? Because they've they, they, there's there's been a lot of talks. Um, you know, they've they've tried their best. You know, but but at the end of the day, nothing has really happened for them. Um, you know, Rishi Sunak and and other men 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 ministers are you know basically prepared to consider a one-off payment right um, to nurses and and healthcare workers to help them actually get through the winter and, and and put an end to these these nurses you know strikes and for the first time in history you know actually tens of tens of thousands of nurses have gone on strike in December and will, will actually continue going on strike in January um, the main cause for the for the strikes uh, for the strikes is is actually the low pay let's let's be very honest um, mm-hmm. and and that nurses receive, which is which is consistently below the inflation level, and in line with the current cost of living crisis, we know that nurses are campaigning for an increase in salaries that are five percent above inflation. Um, this is this is not only for those nurses who are in the NHS, but also for, for and 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 actually also for those uh, from other sectors. Um, so would would the possible let's say I mean and that's that's the question for our listeners too. That are listening in and would want to, you know, share their opinion, you can call us on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven zero is the number number to call. Um, so, would the possible, let's say, privatization of the NHS help, uh, you know, improve the funding and functioning of the NHS, uh, especially the funding for nurses and and and, and other healthcare professionals? What do you, what, what what do you think? Um, so, there's there's both negatives and. and positives right of, of, of privatization, privatization. Okay. so we should we should go through them and uh, i think with with when it comes to negatives yeah um the the holy quran states that a muslim is one who enjoins what is good and forbids evil that's in chapter 3 verse 111 <clears throat> in regards to um this verse the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya muslim community mirza musrul ahmed states here the Quran explains that true Muslims are people who promote goodness, stay away from evil and injustice, and encourage others to follow suit. Only a person who has a sincere love for humankind and feels the anguish of God's creation 
can be caring and sympathetic in the way the Quran desires. Such profound love for humanity is only possible if your heart is pure and free from malice and selfishness. As a quote directly from uh, the leader of the uh, Amdiya Muslim community, Mr. Masrul Ahmed. And so many doctors have expressed their concern over the privatization of the NHS. This has been mostly been because private healthcare establishments have the ability to destabilize the NHS services. In the year 2020-2021, billion pounds, that's 192 billion pounds were spent by the Department of Health and Social Care. This money was used for various services such as GP services, mental health, ambulance, hospital services and other health and care services. The NHS service providers often transfer patients to establishments that cover both public and private services. Mm-hmm. If the NHS continues to outbid services, they may become financially unfeasible and so will cease to exist. Mm-hmm. This could be this could result in private companies donate dominating the care of patients and possibly setting their prices above the cost of care in order to maximize profits. <clears throat> so what does this mean, you know, in in the short term if private providers are motivated solely by profits, then they may be less likely to provide effective care and could possibly cut corners in order to reduce costs. We Own It, a group that campaigns against privatization of public services, believe that the privatization of the NHS could cause further cronism uh, quite quickly. So with with that in mind, like, Hmm. you know, again... As 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 this is the voice of Islam, we we look to the guidance that Islam shows us, yeah. and um, the Holy Quran states uh, in chapter sixteen, verse ninety one, verily Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred. Um, so our job as a society is to do all we can to maintain peace and justice. So no individual's rights and freedom are violated. Private companies are not held to the same standards as public companies and therefore are not required to publish accounts to show that how they have spent their funds. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's put this in context, right? The cost of treatment in U.S. hospitals can be hard to assess due to the lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. American patients are often unsure about what their bills mean and where exactly the money is being paid is actually being used mm-hmm. and private organizations will not carry on providing unprofitable service longer than they need to which could lead to a lack of continuity this means that patients may find their health providers changing during illness yeah. so like for me i feel like it's just the issue is bro people people don't want privatization but they want the services of privately you know how a private hospital is is usually run definitely right so where is where is the balance i know but is it a capacity i've got friends that are not doing like they're not doing normal shifts Hmm. but they're doing locum i think they call it right yeah um and if that's the case then of course and and that i mean um, no nobody's there to judge anyone but let's be realistic if everybody starts doing starts doing that then you know of course you're going to have short staff and you know all, all of these problems we have on the line matt tacy uh, who is a registered mental health nurse and member of Nurses United's CLT. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. 
Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we're speaking about uh, the NHS and you know the, uh, the the strikes that are happening all over the country. Country as we know, as as we know. Why do you think uh, that nurses have actually now resorted to striking to voice their concerns? It's unfortunately it's the last resort we currently have. You know, we, we've tried to have discussions with the government. We've tried to, you know, we've pleaded for help with this current government, and it's fallen on deaf ears. You know, nurses, we don't want to be out on strike. We want to be in hospitals. Mm-hmm. We want to be in our workplaces, providing good and you know good quality care and helping our colleagues. Yep. But with the number of vacancies that we currently have, it's, it's impossible to do that. So, it's you know we exercise on our democratic rights. To strike, um, mm-hmm. we are that. When we're that concerned, we are withdrawing our labour, and hopefully, the government will will listen to our pleas for help this time. Yeah, I mean, if if one asks, what what is the update then? What are they? Uh, has has there been any agreement so far? Uh, what's been the government side of story? The government just keeps slamming the doors in our faces, and that has happened year on year on year. Mm-hmm. You know we're. The RCN, the Royal College of Nurse and the union that's on strike and I'm a member of, we're currently asking for 5% above the rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. So the rate of inflation is about 14%. So the RCN demands are currently at 19 But that's to make up for the loss of pay. You know, we've lost 20%. Okay. Um, and if, if one asks, you know, what impact has the pandemic had on, the, on, on, on your job as a nurse? And, and do you think the government has responded appropriately? Well, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of nurses left during the pandemic. A lot of the nurses, you know, experienced PTSD from, from some of their experiences that they witnessed. A lot of us have still not recovered from the battering we took during COVID. What really angers nurses at the minute is mm-hmm. two, three years ago, you know, we were hailed heroes and we had members of parliament clapping us. Yeah. But now, as it is today, we're asking for a fair wage to be able to pay basic bills. Mm-hmm. And now they're calling us selfish and greedy. You know, how quickly they forget, you know, mm-hmm. how quickly they can forget all of the good that we've done during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've not forgotten. We've far from forgotten. Mm-hmm. It's just making us as nurses angry. And again, it, you know, we're not able to provide the care we want to and mm-hmm. the pa- what our patients need. And, you know, a, an attack on our patients is an attack on us. And that's something we won't accept and we won't mm-hmm. tolerate. So we are standing up for our patients to, to say enough is enough. You need to improve pay so we can retain and recruit the nurses that we need to be able to provide the care our patients need. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And Matt, um, I wanted to ask, because I'm sure people are, ask, are thinking about it, is what impact do you think these strikes will have on patients, given how important your role is? Yeah, and this, this, this question, I think, you know, the, the government tend to want the, the, the members of the public to believe that we're impacting on patient safety. You know, today's day four of the RCN strikes. And, and the purpose of going on strike is to disrupt. Mm-hmm. But it's to disrupt and it's to send a clear message to this government is that we're struggling. We are incredibly concerned about the state of the National Health Service. Mm-hmm. But we must remember, all of the other days of the year, clinics and appointments are already being cancelled because of the sheer number of vacancies. Mm-hmm. So although it's day four of the RCN going out on strike, we must remember that every other day of the year, clinics are being cancelled. You know, we've got I, 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 the hospital, I'm, I'm outside, and I'm actually still on the picket line. You can probably hear the bibbing of, you know, members of the support showing, um, showing support to us. Yeah. But there's six or seven ambulances sat outside A&E where I'm currently at. Mm-hmm. That's unacceptable. You know, that's, and, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not uncommon for people to be in the back of ambulances for eight, nine hours waiting mm-hmm. to be admitted. That's unacceptable. Yeah. It's unacceptable. We want more for our patients. Our patients deserve a lot better. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't. I don't really know what to say. I mean, the public is on your side. I mean, people are supporting you, and 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 and, and you know, what is it that that the government actually need for them to actually, you know, respond? Uh, and 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 do you think delaying that these talks actually actually helps the patients? You know, in the first place. These so, 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 these strikes. You know, the government. The, the They've got the, they, the balls in their court. If they want these strikes to stop, mm-hmm. they need to come to the table, meet with our General Secretary, Pat Cullen, and have meaningful discussions about negotiation and actually ending these disputes. We, we don't want to be out on strike, but we have mm-hmm. to be for our patients. Mm-hmm. If the government wants them to stop, they'll come round the table, they'll speak about a restorative pay rise, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely up to them. You know, we don't want to be out here. It's the last thing we want to be doing. You know, we're seeing ambulances going in past us into A&E. We yeah. want to be inside, being able to treat the patients that are being brought in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's the last resort we have. It's the last resort. You know, my message to anybody that's been impacted by the strikes is I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. we are sorry. We don't want to be out here, mm-hmm. but we have to be in order to protect our patients in the future. Absolutely. And lastly, uh, lastly there, um, what do you think these strikes will actually achieve? You know, for, for example, I'm speaking to yourselves today. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of publicity. You know, it's all over national, you know, internationally, actually. I was yep. interviewed by a Portuguese TV yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's all internationally. These strikes need to send a very clear message to this government that enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate being undervalued and ignored, and given underinflation pay rises, given pay freezes. Mm-hmm. It's all closely linked to the direct care our patients receive. Mm-hmm. And I want the government to say, Do you know what, the nurses are serious. It's the first time in 106 years. Apologies. Um, <laughs> the first time in 106 years that the RPN has been on strike. Yep. This is history being made. Yep. It's on this government's watch, so they need to listen to what's going on. As mm-hmm. you said, the public have been fantastic. You can hear the public parting. They're yep. all behind us. Mm-hmm. You know, our patients are the public. They, yep. Everybody needs the NHS at some point in their lives. Absolutely. The government needs to say, Do you know what? We need we need to sort this out. It needs to be sorted. You know, at the end of the day, it's people's lives. It's people's lives that we are dealing with, and it's impacting on them. So, I just want the government to, to come round the table, mm-hmm. have a reasonable conversation, and let let's settle this. You know, let's negotiate this. Let's resolve this dispute as soon as we possibly can, because mm-hmm. we don't want to disrupt services any more than we have to. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure speaking to you, and hope we hope the best. We, we hope you Thank know you very much. the talks reach really where they need to reach. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take Thank care. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. It's your program. You know, we're discussing the NHS. It's something that's very you know close to all of us. You know, we've all experienced it. A few weeks back, I was in the in the A and E for for a minor football injury, and I know how many hours I had to wait there. And and you know that that you know that whole process of 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 actually, you know, what's interesting um, is is you know I went in there waiting there for four hours or so, right? Hmm. And you know you do naturally you f- you feel agitated and you're thinking yeah. what's going on man where are we like and I was saying to one of my friends right I said if I and I had like, like you know a little cut here on my head yeah. and I said if I was in Pakistan right I would go to a clinic a private clinic and for like twenty five thirty pounds I'll be sorted with, with, within an hour and I'm home and I was having these you know this discussion and then all of a sudden I just looked around and I saw you know young kids. And I saw elders, and one of the elders I was speaking to, she's like, "I've been here since the morning." Oh, wow. Listening to that, right? It just, it just, you know, removed any sort of, you know, agitation that I had, um, uh, and 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 that's the reason because because you know yeah. when when you see people struggling more than you, you know, things are kind of put into perspective, and 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 you think, and 
and the thing is you can't really be angry at the staff that's there yeah of course there i mean the the you know the in charge at the time came out and she basically apologized and said look this is what we have i mean mm. we're trying to deal with so many patients and and so i mean it's 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 actually an unfortunate unfortunate situation and i think and it just is one of the things where healthcare man is is one of the things where i you know if i was the prime minister i think one of the major focuses would be that yeah you know and trying trying to improve it and and it's bit by bit that has come to where it is now you know the way it has declined it's it's not been a sudden decline it's it's taken years yeah and it may take years for it to you know to be somewhere so so why not you know because the whole privatization process you think that's going to come at no cost no think about it yeah. right how how much of that going to cost the stress and all all and and in you know all of these things So why not I mean was I was asking this to someone and I think if someone's hearing this can call in and answer this why is it the case that they are they are paying people on locum more than more than you know what a person would normally be earning why can't they just pay them hmm. you know so so that people don't have people don't have to do those those shifts you know instead of their their, their normal hours yeah right so I mean uh, if someone can come you know call in and kind of explain that uh, to us But I think we we are going again to our next guest. So we're speaking to William Palmer, uh, um, who's the health policy commentator at Nuffield Trust. Assalamualaikum, may peace and blessings of God be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're discussing the NHS and and the current strikes um, that are happening up and down the country. Um, one of the many issues you know facing nurses is that they are understaffed and subsequently overworked. Why do you think uh, this is the case when you know statistics show that the number of registered UK nurse numbers have actually increased up by 10% in the last 4 years? Mm. So that's right. So in the last 4 years we've seen, you know, for every 10 nurses there were there's an extra one now. And mm-hmm. actually if you look just at the NHS hospitals in particular, it's actually been a slightly bigger increase in that, about 13% increase in nurses over 4 years. But that's the sort of the absolute number is that enough and there's many markers that suggest that's not enough we actually needed a bigger increase mm-hmm. um i think sort of leading into the pandemic there mm-hmm. were there was a shortage yeah. and then we've had we've got this issue whereby we've created this large backlog in care because of the need to uh, treat people over covid differently and that sort of created this yeah. uh, yes this sort of large uh, amount of care to provide and therefore we need even more nurses now so there's I think on any given day there's probably about 17,000 nurse posts which don't have anyone working in them. So often okay. when they talk about vacancies, yep. actually some of those vacancies had temporary staff in them, but mm-hmm. by our calculations it's something like that many where there's not any nurses as well. Yeah. So that's I mean and that, and that's a challenge for all concerned because if you're one mm-hmm. of the ones working and you've got an empty post next to you that, you know, will put mm-hmm. more pressure on you and we've You know, we see at the moment uh, in the last year one in nine nurses left uh, mm. the NHS left active service that's a record mm-hmm. in relative terms yeah. um and then we're struggling to fill those yeah. so we're having to rely very heavily on international recruitment i mean it's it's i mean the next obvious question would be then that how do you actually motivate youngsters going into medicine to become nurses and doctors you know Yeah. They they they're seeing the situation that these doctors and nurses are in because you know if you think about it these professions are um you know somewhat looked up to right and yeah. uh, you know from the parents 
point of view, you know, uh, you know, as well as students, how much competition there is for someone to become a doctor, yeah. the amount of hours and years they spend, the finances for them to become a doctor and nurse and then to see the situation that they're in. So how do you see that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a real risk. So it's, a, it's a good question to ask because if you look at the current situation, mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, is this a good advert mm. for the NHS and for people wanting to work in it? And of course it's not. You know, people see on the news mm-hmm. about the struggles that these staff members are going on and the fact that they're having to, well, they've, they've chosen to go on strike. Um, mm-hmm. And that clearly isn't good for those who might be at school considering to, you know, become a nurse, an allied health professional to, or to be a doctor. I think the... One positive there is there's usually a huge number of people who want to be providing care. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, there's there's a large number of people who, who want to sort of be doing that basic job. It's then about creating the working conditions that are appealing to people or yep. at least acceptable to people. Yeah, spot definitely. And so, what impact does the NHS pay review body have on the actual salary of health workers, and how yeah. can they support them? Yeah. So this is the the process uh, which is used for pay setting. So there's a there's a body set up and uh, the unions, so that would be the Royal College of Nursing, for example, uh, the NHS employers and the government uh, across the UK, although actually Scotland have, have not engaged in it in the last few years, um, submit evidence to these pay review bodies. And then they then make a recommendation about what they think should happen to nurse pay. So in this last year, they suggested that um, it should be increased by, broadly speaking, about £1,400. It's, it's slightly higher for some groups, but that's sort of the typical increase. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that, historically, in about one in three occasions, governments haven't taken on board the recommendations of the pay review body. So they've either delayed giving that increase or not done it in full. So governments aren't always playing, uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, fulfilling... Uh, their obligations to that pay review body. And then uh, now you've got a situation where the union saying they're not going to engage in the process. So they've said mm-hmm. for this forthcoming year, they're not even going to engage in it. And in terms of this pay review process, we're talking about the pay year that started in April. So we're 293 days or so into this pay uh, mm-hmm. year, and we're still having arguments about the level. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole process is, is just very untimely. It all happens very late. Mm-hmm. And you have these arguments about what's happening in this year's pay when we should be talking about, well, how do we make sure we've got the right pay and the right conditions for this coming year? So so the, the mm-hmm. level that will be implemented in April. Absolutely. I mean, and I mean, how is it possible for a nurse or a doctor to to actually, you know, if if, 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 if the only thing on their mind is their pay, right? How, how, mm-hmm. how can they mentally provide care? And, you know, and, and, and you feel that when you go into the NHS and, you know, um, but but maybe if you can tell us what is you know the difference uh, in the salary of let's say nurses in the UK uh, in comparison to other healthcare workers? Yeah, so I guess if we compare the UK well nurses' salary in the UK to other countries, yeah. So we sit broadly speaking in the middle. So okay. we pay a bit more than France and Finland, less than Germany and Denmark. But if you compare to English-speaking countries, yeah. So Australia, US, we actually pay quite a lot less. Okay. Um, that's where we sit internationally. In terms of compared to other staff groups, we have one of the biggest differences between nurse and senior doctor pay of any country. Okay. So it's over threefold difference between those two groups, where it's on average between countries with data is about twice usually. So doctors are paid paid well. You're saying? 
compared to nurses, there's a, there's a bigger disparity in the UK compared to other countries. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, lastly, um, what impact, you know, in your personal opinion, do you think the strikes will actually have? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a short-term impact, um, which we know those striking in the short term are losing money. You know, they, they, the amount they get in strike pay is less than they would be receiving anyway. So it's mm-hmm. potentially in the short term bad for them. It's bad for those who are going to work because they don't have people around them yeah. uh, to help them fight care. It's bad for the employers who are trying to work out, and it's bad for government. But this yeah. is not to say in the longer term it won't precipitate, you know, a pay deal that will be yeah. more sustainable. But, you know, in the short term, we just, it, it's so unprecedented. We don't know quite what will happen. Yeah. Um, we know the situation in Scotland where mm-hmm. the Royal College have actually chosen to step away from strike action at the moment. Okay. Um, because government have committed to bringing forward the uh, the pay review process and also any pay increase, they said they'll backdate by a few months. Oh, okay. That seems to be, there seems to be a route out of here. There seems to be something that would be acceptable to the union. And, mm. and uh, we'll see how that pans out in Scotland. But that's maybe a lesson that there is, there is maybe an opportunity to, to step away from the current uh, industrial yeah. dispute that we've got. Okay, thank you so much, William. It was it was a it was a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you for giving no, us sure, your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. It's it's it is quite depressing. I mean, you know, speaking about um, and you know, because the question would be then is 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 it the case that the government can help and and they're not willing to help? It's, it's it's a hard one because you know the, because you you have these discussions of COVID and you know the other things that are geopolitical things that are happening you know around the world how mm. that has impacted the country and all of these things whether the government is in place to to do that for the for for the for the NHS or not I don't know I mean to be very honest definitely for, for me I think it's it something you mentioned uh, while speaking to the guest was that yeah. um, you said uh, you know if pay is all that's on your mind mm. um you know how can you do your job properly because and you know people might think oh why, why are you thinking about money or whatever but has like i'm pretty sure everybody's been in a job at least where they've not felt as like valued yeah, or yeah, yeah. not felt like they've got the pay that they deserve based on the work that they're actually doing mm-hmm. right and so imagine to to look after all these people you know and and have that feeling and I, I just yeah I'm at a loss I think that it's just sit down and have a conversation whatever it needs to be it needs to be resolved right yeah. like why I, I just feel like it, it's it's being they're kicking the can further down the road it's like it's yeah, not going to make I'm, you I'm, have I'm, to deal I'm, with it I mean when I was looking online it, it, it was the thing, same thing with the train crisis at the time of Christmas and all these things they were making the unions look bad or you're doing it at a certain time where people need but, but, but the reality is the fact of the matter is, you should have sorted it out way before. Yeah, and 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 this is a last resort for people to actually, you know, uh, you know, uh, according to the law, uh, you know, uh, waste their opinions and yeah. waste their right. Because it's look, it's a negotiation, right? Mm. Like the nurses have put their stance forward. They've mm-hmm. they've explained what they think is and, right, and you know, just get to the table and you know and, come and, to an agreement. And 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 the thing, William, you know, was stating with regards to the statistics that are given to. Let's say you're seeing what you know, giving facts about Scotland, hmm. where they did present, and and I think I'm not sure whether it was accepted or not, but they said they'll take this forward. Yeah. Right. And and you saw the strikes didn't happen. 
So when there there is a conversation in place, you know things can be resolved much quicker. But that's that's not the case, and that's something that we've not seen here. But we're speaking about you know privatization, and 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 you mentioned uh, various negative aspects of it. But 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 are there any positive aspects? I mean, let's let's see. I mean, one of the main reasons, uh, you know, people speak about privatization of the NHS, uh, and 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 that is being discussed, is because the current model, you know, as they say, is no longer you know working. And, mm. and that is due to the increase and intense financial uh, pressure on the NHS, um, and it is believed, you know, that that, that a healthcare system that is uh, completely uh, publicly funded is not suitable in the long term. And and given the you know the rapid increase in life ex- expectancy and 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 of course advancements in in technology, which have you know made medicine, which they say have made medicine more uh, expensive, mm. and. Furthermore, if you know, if if you incorporate, uh, you know, incorporating private healthcare services, it will, inc- you know, it will introduce competition that, in return, can lower costs for pa- uh, patients. That's uh, I'm not sure whether that is that yeah, is but true. You're having to pay for it, then, aren't you? <laughs> exactly, but but uh, but I think you're not. I mean, even in the U.S. and stuff, you're you're insured, right? You're not you're not paying the actual full amount. Mm. If you, if you should think about it, and in August. Uh, 2010, only one patient waited longer than 12 hours to be seen in the NHS A&E. In October 2022, this figure has increased to more than 43,000 people. The distribution of services to private companies could result in reduced waiting times, which would benefit the patient, resulting in faster treatment, faster recovery, and increased quality of life sooner. I mean, that's not my opinion. I'm just you know, presenting some of, you know, points that people yeah. present in terms of, you know, the positive aspects of uh, privatization, you're more than welcome to disagree with it. And please do call us in if you do. You know, a major concern lately uh, is the working conditions and, and, and pay for doctors and I think it's mainly for nurses uh, and other healthcare professionals. Um, after 106 years, nurses in the UK have planned to go on strike due to issues over pay and shortages. The privatization of the NHS would mean that working conditions for healthcare professionals would improve and fewer people would overwork and ban out. There would be better pay conditions and employment benefits. And so the question is, and it raises the question, it is privatization the best choice for the majority? Uh, you know, let's let's take a look at some you know some some of the other benefits. Let's say you know privatization would would also allow patients to choose how they would like to be treated and what treatment they would want. Yeah. Right? Um, waiting times will be reduced, uh, they say, via, via privatization, and it is estimated that at the beginning of this year, 7.5 million people are waiting for treatment. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't reach a conclusion whether, uh, you know, uh, privatization would actually yeah. would actually help. No, um, I, I see the benefits, right? There's definitely going to be benefits. There's going to be... Um, you know, improved services because it's like more, you know, private companies have less red tape, so to speak, with the, the public companies about like they can decide where to cut corners and things like that. But then I think that's a negative thing, right? If you think about it, like mm-hmm. this way, at least everybody is getting service. And like, look, I don't think anybody makes you wait on purpose. No one, like, you know, it's put in, it's put in, you're put in priority order depending yeah. on what you're dealing with. Right at that moment when you get into A and E, you feel like just about yourself, right? You're just mm. focused on yourself. But these people are actually trying to manage a whole bunch of people, and I get that waiting times can be long at times. 
but ultimately you are getting free care no matter what 365 you have any sort of problem you go to your nearest hospital and you get dealt with and i think that people like think about it in the us you you go there you go to the hospital you're about to like you something life-threatening you, you get saved but then you get slapped with a seventy thousand pound bill or seventy thousand dollar bills or whatever yeah. like so yeah and i think for people that don't even have insurance let's say i, I don't even know if if someone can call us and ex- you know how's that you know in the in the, in the u.s whether they're even treated because there are many homeless people so whether they whether they are for let's say for minimal treatment uh, you know let's say if they have an accident all of these things do they get treated uh, do do they have that system in, in place? I, I'm I'm not sure. If 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 you are, then you can. No, I, I'm not sure. But the, the, for me, I just think that the, the question that you ask, you, we just got to think what's better for society. And I think that there's not enough information, in my opinion, on what would be better with, with whether it's to privatize or not. But how it's looking, I think that it's it's. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that we need to deal with this strike situation. We need to pay people the uh, the way that we should. Yeah, because the thing is, you can't you can't allow, allow it to you know from getting from bad to worse. Yeah, you know, as, as as I was saying earlier, you got to take a step at a time, and uh, basically go on from there, is isn't it? But I think we do have um, on yeah. the line our next guest. We'll be speaking to Dr. Maria Courage, who is a Gaitriatic and general medicine in Scotland, consultant actually, um, and we'll be, we'll be speaking to her now. Salam alaikum, welcome to the Drive Time Show. Salam alaikum, thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Maria, for joining us. Um, um, we're talking about the nurse strikes that are happening uh, at the moment, and uh, we wanted to get your opinion. I mean, the nurses' uh, strikes have come as they feel, uh, you know, that they are un- underpaid uh, and and they're understaffed. What impact do you think this this is having on the patients? Well, it's very hard for us to do anything that would have an impact in our patients. And I think mm-hmm. um, the strike was something nobody wanted. The mm. nurses just wanted their paid recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as you know, I'm a spokesperson for every doctor, and we fully support their decision to strike. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Obviously, in my field, um, we will see no impact in, in the work of the general wards and the work of mm-hmm. A&E and emergency services. We won't see any impact, you know, because those services are, are always kept. But I think probably people that have been waiting for an operation might find themselves that finally it was going to be today and it's not, or it was going to be tomorrow and, and it's not. And that must be, you know, add to their suffering and add to their frustration and mm. ultimately cause trouble for the government, which is uh, what I think is the ultimate goal here, to, to make the government listen and understand that this is very serious. Mm-hmm. Do you think the government would actually listen? You know, I, I really don't know. And I am very fearful that they might not, mm-hmm. because um, our nurses are leaving. They're mm. going to work in Marks and Spencers, and they're going oh. to work in other jobs because their job is really, really hard, it's not recognized, they get, they get a lot of grief from, from the public, from mm. patients, from, from, from their own managers, because people are working in a very pressurized environment and sometimes we're not the best to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am very fearful that they might not listen because there's nothing stopping a nurse 
giving in her notice. She, you know, we live in a in a country where there's hardly any unemployment. Mm-hmm. They would find a job the day after tomorrow, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, and and they they have a vocation. Uh, nurses are, you know. A, a wonderful set of professionals mm-hmm. uh, because not only they're very they're highly skilled they're also so humane and so self-effacing and sacrificing they, they truly are no doubt you know some of the best people and i think to push them into this corner is very unfair and i do hope that the, the government will listen but uh, at the moment it's just a hope <laughs> i don't think we have yeah. any guarantee that they will definitely and so um you know, given the climate that we're in with the cost of living crisis, um, do you think that nurses and healthcare workers in general are paid enough? Well, uh, nurses' uh, bans are, um, you know, the, the way they're paid depends on their experience and mm-hmm. on their level of skills and on their degrees. Um, some nurses are paid a fair salary, I would say, but most nurses are not. The ones that you will see in the ward or attending to a patient in A&E or cleaning a patient or helping a patient to go to the toilet or, or doing the basic nursing care, those are exceptionally badly paid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, as I said, they work 13-hour shifts, um, Mm-hmm. Sometimes no chance of a break, um, although they are entitled to have breaks, um, many times they don't have them or they have them too early or too late, just mm-hmm. not when they're tired. Um, and uh, and they have to go through a lot of training all throughout their careers. You, you cannot just have your degree in nursing and just work away as a nurse for the rest of your life, not bothering about learning, bettering yourself, going through all the mandatory training from mm-hmm. your uh, hospital uh, and so on. So it's a very, very demanding job. Mm-hmm. Um, for 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 the job that they do, absolutely not. They're not well paid. And mm-hmm. I would like to remind people that these nurses, at the beginning of the pandemic, when COVID killed around 10% of the people that got it, mm-hmm. and we knew that, we knew that one in 10 would die. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have vaccinations, and we didn't have the right PPE. They still looked after those patients. They showed up to work, mm. and and the ones that were shielding were were upset that they had to shield because they wanted to help. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the generosity of these people. These are people that put their life on the line. They did it for us. Mm, you absolutely. Know. Um, and it's not being recognised. They haven't had a pay raise. They haven't had anything. Absolutely. I mean, what what. What does you know clapping for someone actually do if you don't oh, really you know yeah. appreciate them? It's just um, and I think I think majority of the people uh, you know whoever you speak to uh, you know they are with the with with the nurses and and they feel that they should be appreciated and they should get their fair share. Look, um, as a doctor working in general medicine, um, I could choose to examine the patient from afar, mm. to not get too close. They didn't have that choice. Mm. They they had to go in, clean them, wash them, put their nebulizers, all these without the appropriate masks wow. and without any vaccinations and knowing that the virus killed one in 10 people at that time, which was, was the, the statistics we were working with when the outbreak started. I think that I mean, alone... That, but to me, that's heroic. Isn't yes, it? no you doubt. Know, to me, that's heroic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that alone should be enough for the government to actually, you know, uh, mm-hmm. listen mm-hmm. to them. And, and because it's not something that they ask, it's, it's unfair. I think it's, 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 it's the, the saying is probably 100 or so years later that, 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 that the only strikes that, that have happened, uh, you know, for the, for the nurses. So, you know, you know, we can only hope the best. But, um, you know, going on these strikes, do you think the decision for the nurses to actually go on these strikes are a sign, you know, for the government to actually look at the way that the NHS is, is funded? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you were talking about privatization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, we should have asked you about that, actually. We know the NHS, yeah, we know the NHS is... Uh, a beast, you know, a lot of expenses go through the NHS, it's costly, mm-hmm. but um, the problem with privatization is that it's not been done in a transparent manner, mm. um, we don't think politicians are being honest about how it's been done, mm-hmm. and we don't know either if it has been beneficial, this idea that, oh, if we make it private, it will work, where does it come from, like, mm. where do we have that assurance. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we saying this? Why are we parroting this? Yeah. The other thing is that there are things that will never be private because they're not profitable and they could never be profitable. I'm talking about emergency services. Mm-hmm. Mm, who's going to take that on? Um, you know, we, we have to invest in, in the system that we had. It was very, very, very good yes. only 20 years ago. Can mm-hmm. we get back to that? Can we, mm-hmm. can we try it? I'm, we're afraid that the government will, how do you say it in English, uh, throw the baby with the bathwater, is that how it goes? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, w- w- because there are some problems, mm-hmm. we're going to say, just, okay, we're done with this, yeah, we're going to yeah. privatize the NHS, and suddenly it's we realize a, yeah, that, exactly. yeah, a, that, oh my goodness. It's not a flick of a button, is it? Uh, that, and that's, that's, uh-huh. that, that's what we were speaking about earlier, that privatization in itself would take a lot of money, you know, a lot of resources, and you know, who knows that mm-hmm. on the other side whether it will be, um, you know, it will come out, uh, you know, benefiting the people and uh, you know, as mm-hmm. a whole, as mm-hmm. a nation, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for the NHS, people trust it. You know, it's, it's always been there for people. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. So, 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 why is it the case that they are not willing to? They are not willing to, you know, uh, invest in their, you know, in something that's already, you know, that's something that has worked for years and years. Mm-hmm. I really think, um, you know, the, uh, I'm originally from Spain. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the British culture is very much about action and, you know, wins and doing this and, and you mm-hmm. know, sorting something. Yeah. And, and, and that's something I really admire from them. But I think for big problems like this one, I wish they would take, you know, perhaps something out of, you know, uh, the Muslim community where they are very careful and they mm. think about a problem and they think again and they discuss it and they argue it and mm. things go a bit slower and they come to the right conclusions through a lot of thinking you mm-hmm. know they put a lot of thought mm-hmm. into making a decision into you know i think this is very important and we need to pause mm-hmm. and and, and start to think what what okay is 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 the the public way is the state way of funding is not working what can work but mm. let's think about this very, very carefully. Absolutely. It cannot be, you know, uh, a bit sound to win an election. It, we, we cannot treat it like that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was asking this earlier. Do you, do, I mean, you know, in other countries, let's say you're speaking about, you know, talking about Spain, for instance, how does, uh, you know, the healthcare actually work there or other, other European countries? 
if mm-hmm. if we compare the UK to it, if if you if you can only share some of that with us. Um, well, I'm not very up to date with mm-hmm. how things are run, and the other thing is in Spain, and um, there's loads of different parts of Spain that um, work independently from each other. So okay. health is devolved to every single region in Spain. So mm. what I might tell you is true about Madrid is Makes not sense. true for Barcelona or is not true for Valencia. So mm-hmm. um, d- difficult to generalize. But what I would say is that um, in most European countries, a private practice runs parallel to the government um, side of things and mm-hmm. that people are much more willing to spend money on private practice for convenience. Mm. Um, so most people that are middle class would not go to the NHS dermatologist. They would go to their private dermatologist. They don't mind spending money for that or mm. the private gynecologist because you want a bit of continuity and people appreciate mm. that. And in here, it's only, I would say, you know, people that are quite wealthy that would yeah. consider doing that. Um, in Spain, France, Belgium, the, the, the countries where I've worked, I would say a lot of people would just go private, you know, mm. uh, just for convenience, you know, not yeah. because the state uh, system is not good, but perhaps they can only give them an appointment that's a bit short or mm. their appointment is on a day that they don't want to go. And for those cases people would go private and mm-hmm. there wouldn't be much drama about it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, I mean, it was a pleasure uh, speaking to Dr. Maria. Thank you so much for taking no, up your time and explaining so to us and raising me. awareness, you know, for people to truly understand what is actually going on. Thank you so much. Take Thank care you of yourself. So much. Bye-bye. 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 Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. But we only have about four minutes to go. We, we we're coming to the end of our first hour where we discuss the NHS, uh, the crises with regards to the you know the the current um, strikes that are taking place. Um, one thing we always speak about is the Islamic aspect, and and the founder of the Hamdiya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the Promised Messiah, stated. In at one of his uh, in, in in one of his books known as Noah's Ark, he says, "Be kind and merciful to humanity, for all are his creatures. Do not oppress them with your tongue or hands or in any other way. Always work for the good of mankind, and never unduly assert yourselves with pride over others, even those who are placed under you. Never use abusive language for anyone, even though he abuses you. Be humble in spirit, kind and gentle, and forgiving and sympathetic towards." all and wishing them all well so that you should be accepted and his 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 holiness the you know the current caliph uh, of 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 the community of the promised messiah uh, he also said that instead of being consumed by materialism and and a desire for power every nation whether rich or poor must prioritize the peace and security of the entire world above all else instead of embarking on an arms race leading to death and destruction, we must join the race to save and protect humanity. So prioritizing, as we were discussing before as well, um, you know, humanity over Definitely. violence is what Islam actually promotes. <coughs> Hence why, you know, the Hamdi Muslim community has the logo and, and we always proclaim it in love for all, uh, hatred, hatred for none. So Yeah, um, I wanted to let the listeners know about our poll on Instagram as well. Mm, um, please do. We've we've had a poll asking you, do you support the Nessus strike? Um, currently, it's at 67% yes and 33% no. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a split there. I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone who's voted no, especially. I'd want to 
hear what you're saying yeah. and wh- why you felt that way. Yep. Um, but yeah, you can uh, get involved in all of our polls uh, for and follow us on social media yep. at Voice of Islam UK on Instagram and Twitter. I think one of the things that we've learned here in this past you know, hour is the fact that these nurses don't want to be on strikes. They want yeah. to be in, in, you know, in, in hospitals and, 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 and helping people. And that's the last thing there should be. They, you know, they want to be thinking about, you know, pay rises and all of these things. I right? just it's just a wasted energy, you know, from, from their perspective. The Definitely. people that we've spoken to, you know, all of them have said that, that they would rather be inside helping people. Exactly. I, I just feel like anybody who does that type of job, clearly has a good heart to, to want to like look after better people mm. and, like and to help people be better mm. and to like improve their health and you have to be willingly do, you, you know willingly it's not an easy it, thing yeah. to do and so anybody who's actually in that do you really think that they're the type that would be like hey you know what I want to get paid more so I'm not going to do my job mm-hmm. right? these people genuinely want to help and make a difference and and you know it tells that, that they, they've been waiting they, they, they're patiently asking for it for the you know, for for the amount of years that they have, right? Mm. And hundred or so years later, now this is the first time they're that they're striking, that they're being forced to strike in a, in a way, if you think about it. But that that's it from us. I mean, we have discussed a lot with regards to the uh, the NHS, the current nurse uh, strike, nurse yeah. strikes, as well as you know the privatization of the NHS, whether it will be negative, whether whether it even has any positives to it. And you know, we thank our guests who came on and actually. You know, gave their take on this, and you know, uh, we, we've learned a lot. I mean, we'll be back okay. uh, after a short break uh, with the second hour, where we'll be discussing another important topic: ISIS, whether they are still a threat. With that, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the second hour of the Drive Time Show here at Voice of Islam. You're joined by myself, Rahil Ahmad and Fahim Nasir. We'll be discussing, you know, a topic that may sound a little random to our listeners because, yeah. uh, as in, it's it has been really long since we have really heard of ISIS, uh, and but the the but but it almost as it almost feels as if they aren't operating anymore, and the threat to national security of countries has perhaps decreased. But a new analysis and reports from terrorism experts say the opposite. Experts are warning that the threat of ISIS to world security remains significant despite the group's diminished operative power in recent years. It is said that the terrorist group and its affiliates you know, further afield are focused on exploiting regional instabilities, especially in Africa and, mid, and, and the mid, Middle East, and still have designs on seizing ter- territory and expanding violence. I mean, as ISIS claims that, that its activities are carried out in the name of Islam, in the cause of Islam, it is important to look at the Islamic teachings which provide that nothing can be further from the truth. 
Among the attributes of Allah the Almighty, the Holy Quran mentions that He is the source of peace and the bestower of security. Chapter 59, verse 23. Therefore, the establishment of, of peace and maintenance of security must be the constant objective of all Muslims and non-Muslims alike. So ISIS, uh, you know, threat and re-emergence, Fahim. <laughs> what, how does it make you feel? I was, I was shocked to see this on, on the schedule. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. like, I didn't know this. But yeah, as, 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 as mentioned, uh, people are, I mean, the experts in, in the field of terrorism are, are, are mentioning that they're still a threat. And mm-hmm. yeah, for me, I, I'm just, they definitely what they have, what they do is just not Islamic in any way. And sometimes I just like I sit there and I think, and I'm like, have they even read the Quran? Like, mm. you know, sometimes it just shocks me that anybody, but people are brainwashed. There are evil actors that are manipulating people, and mm-hmm. I get that. But just yeah. sometimes it just baffles me. I, th- I think that you know, how can mm-hmm. people not see the truth of Islam? Or maybe I'm just like. No, yeah. I think the thing is that that every religion, right, they they have certain particular verses, whether it's the Bible or the Quran, we find, which speak about, you know, uh, we speak about violence, let's be very mm. honest. But the context is very important, whether whether these verses are general in the application or whether they have a historical context. Mm. And I think that, that, that needs to be understood because other than that, you can take, you know, I can take any verse and just, and just go, mm. just, 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 just go crazy. Yeah. And the question that you know arises is the people, you know, the children, let's say, or not children, but the teens in uh, in the U.S. with regards to the gun violence that just picks up a gun yeah. and just goes shooting people, right? Um, it's it's basically the same thought process, right, of these people, and 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 majority of those that that have been that have been suffered at, at the hands of the terror these terrorists have been Muslims. Mm-hmm. Have been those who've who've lived in those you know those countries. They've had their businesses and their livelihood stolen from them, and then these very people, when they when they tr- when they when they leave that land, you know, they, they migrate to another land for peace and security. They they have been told you're the reason for the crises in in the in the country that you've come into. Mm. So just 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 put that into perspective, and then also looking into the looking into you know how these these groups are funded. What is it that keeps them alive, right? These and these because these are these are important questions. These are not superficial narratives that we that that we often you know hear and and you know that are being portrayed on social uh, on on media and social media, of course. But I see at times you know people are learning more from social media. It's interesting. Hmm. Let's say twenty five years ago, you know the 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 nine eleven all that all that narrative and everything you know. Yeah. If someone was reading a book, you know that was explaining or questioning these things, it would make sense. But but social media is just so much more accessible to people, yeah. and the information is just you know in unverified information is so yeah yeah. I mean what what, I, what I'm saying here is, you know, you people question social media misinformation, but there's also information that that has truth to it. Yeah, are, are, are you getting my point? I mean, the point I'm trying to say is. The, if there is on mainstream media, there is a narrative on Fox News or whatever with, with regards to Islam, right? I'm just mm. giving, giving, a, giving an example. That is an extremist faith, or they're presenting it in, in a way. You, you're right? saying that there's less control over the narrative that the media have because of social media, right? Because they, like before, it was controlled by just exactly you know, just news. So when it's controlled, or, 
you can say there are positives to it as well because because of misinformation that we see. But then mm. when it's controlled, there are also negatives to it because yeah. be- because skewed, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So the, 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 the people that have control can literally, you know, show you what they want for yeah. you for you to see, and that's the question. You know, that's the difficulty that we have. You know, when when they say regulate social media and all of these mm. things, these questions and you know uh, are very hard to answer. Yeah, definitely. So, like, let's talk about the reemergence a little bit. Um, yeah. In what the terrorism experts have said. So yeah. what they what they're saying is that while ISIS no longer controls vast regions of uh, Iraq or uh, mm-hmm. Syria and Syria, it remains a threat and will seek to spring ten thousand of its fighters from Syrian prisons in twenty twenty three. Um, the terror group is much diminished from its peak in 2014, but it remains a menace in a volatile part of the Middle East, as well as abroad in Afghanistan and parts of Africa. There are fears that a possible ground offensive by Turkey in Syria could create the perfect conditions for ISIS, uh, ISIS to um, seize power once again. Middle East expert Dr. Shiraz Mehir even went as far to, as to say that blink and you'll miss it and suddenly ISIS will be back. The danger of IS activity in Iraq, uh, Iraq and Syria remains despite its diminished, diminished presence. Some 70,000 people which suspected links to the group, including women and children and around 10,000 IS militants are being held by Kurdish forces in northeast Syria. I mean, one would think that by now they should, uh, you know, they should they should have been, you know, uh, charged and you know gone through the whole process of you know being punished or you mm. know, reaching a conclusion. But you know, even now, you know, you see that you've got uh, what you're saying, seventy thousand or ten thousand ISIS militants that are being held. It's you know, it, it, you know, it goes to show that of course it's a threat because mm. if any time because prison breaks and all these things are a possibility. Um, so IS, you know, has been, you know, clear that it intends to free its supporters, as 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 we discussed earlier. And in January last year, it used uh, vehicles and you know explosives to ram through the walls of Avingurian prison in Hasake in a bid to free the three thousand held there. So Dr. Shiraz Maher also, you know, says that the risk of IS freeing thousands of imprisoned fighters is the single greatest security threat to the West. Now, in 2019, when the case of Shamima Begum, Shamima yeah. Begum right, we've discussed it a lot here, was in news, and, and the then British government was deciding on whether to revoke her British, British citizenship or not. The fifth and current caliph of the Hindi Muslim community actually said that when this started, our stance was that she should be allowed to come to the country for the sake of the child. She should be tried in the court. Unfortunately, it is said that the child has expired now, so now it is up to the government, um, uh, you know, uh, it is it's, uh, it's, uh, now it is up to the government. She has been denied the right to of being a citizen of of the country. Then now other Muslim countries could take her. Islam never says that you should you know commit such brutalities, which are being done by Daesh or any other extremist group. So, you know this this goes to show that you know um, you know I mean the question of whether a person sh- you know no no matter what they have done should ever be stateless. You know, there there are a lot of discussions, you know, on that as well. Um, and the point the point is that you know, if someone has been you know part of and have committed a crime, then they should be punished, right? The delay in justice is they say 
justice unserved, right? Yeah. And 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 if that's what's happening in 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 Syria, and I don't know the details of it, what 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 are the reasons for you know keeping these prisoners? You know, if they have, if they have, and because the issue is this, because then the question of there's no capital punishment yeah, within 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 a, within, a, within a Western society, right? Yeah. So, whereas in an Islamic system, there is uh, a capital punishment for such people who have, you know, committed, um, you know, heinous, you know, atrocities. Yeah, the thing is, is that you know you're breeding, uh, like, you're breeding frustration. The word I was looking for because whenever you're waiting, it's like you mentioned in the previous show about how you waited four hours at the A and E. Like, like you know, when you when you're waiting a decision, isn't that the worst like moment in anything, right? When you're waiting for like it just stirs thing worst, right? Because you're like, am I this way? Am I that way? Like, yeah. being in limbo is probably like the worst place that you could be. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that that's why swift decisions. Um, should be made and these things should be dealt with but they're always no it should never be that delayed that much yeah. that, that that's what I'm saying I mean uh, I mean the less okay I mean we don't know to, to be to be very honest about the detailed of course yeah. uh, you know um, details with regards to what's happening in you know these prisons right there, there are certain documentaries that that one sees but then there are there are things that are happening in the background that we're completely, uh, completely yeah, un- we're unaware not of. Not following the case. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, speaking about terrorism and Islam, I mean, Islam and terrorism, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty, you know, begins to deal with the issue of terrorism by actually teaching Muslims never to become terrorists in the first place. And 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 two of the very first verses of the Quran say in the sight of Allah, uh, say in the sight of Allah, persecution or making people constantly feared, fear for their lives is worse, is much worse than killing. You know, you're saying mm. that weight of, What's, yeah. what's going to happen to you? Always so it says, Al-fitna, Al-fitna right? These are the words. Now, the Holy Quran also says that there should be no compulsion of religion. This is something that we've really, we numerously, you know, in previous programs have mentioned, like Ikraha Fiddin, that no one has a right to force others to, into complying with their demands or compelling others to follow their line of thinking. Um, Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, the talented wife of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, she, she says that she says that some uh, desert desert Arabs. Arabs, you know, came to him one day and asked, um, do, "Do do you even kiss your children?" He he answered, "Yes." They said, "We never kiss them," uh, and, and you know, in the hadith is you know being being affectionate to you know towards your children. The Prophet peace be upon him said, "What can I do if your hearts have been stripped of compassion?" He also said that Allah the Almighty has no mercy for him who has no mercy for fellow fellow beings. Now, the measure of compassion shown by the Holy Prophet, we see upon him, cannot but amaze anyone who, who knows how rough and violent was a society into you know, which he had been born. Abu Qatada, you know, may Allah be pleased with her, um, you know, relates that the Holy Prophet, um, the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, said, It happens that I stand up to lead the prayer, having in mind to lengthen it. Then I hear the cry of an infant and I shorten the prayer fearing lest I should cause inconvenience to its mother. So so, so if you think about it, I mean, Islam in its core, you know, um, it's very considerate to to that extent. Uh, and and the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, far, it, it, it's far from inciting hatred, you know, and, and, and sort of aggressiveness in its followers. It, you know, it's, Islam actually keeps, you know, Islam keeps on enjoining kindness and, and actually sympathy you know, towards others. I mean, I mean, people I think realize this, 
and 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 I think to us it just it 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 may come as 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 a repetition, right? Mm-hmm. That that we we're always having to speak about these things. We're always having to defend and say no. Islam is not you know the religion of violence, violence and all of these things. Yeah. But I think those that convert or sometimes they call them reverts, right? That that come to Islam, you know, genuinely researching. You know, I, I think it was one of the Danish, uh, you know, uh, anti-Islamic parties, right? Far-right movements. Mm-hmm. I think one of, I think the second in command, I'm, I'm not sure what his name is, we, we can say it, is the person who was totally against Islam. And, 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 and he got into reading about Islam based on his, his prejudice and his hatred for Islam. Came to a realization that Islam is actually, tr- you know, is the truth. Mm. And, and he accepted it. So that tells you that, you know, if... If you go beyond the you know the superficial narratives that we see, and and you truly work you know you truly read and work hard and sincerely, you will reach a conclusion that this this religion look you cannot enforce, you know the swords can bend heads but not minds you know the mm. the, the 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 famous uh, quote of the caliph the, the fourth caliph of the MD Muslim community. There's ne- there's never been you know in the in, in the history of mankind and this that incident of of the conquest of Makkah always hits me. Like, mm. this is this is, this is is the pinnacle, you know, this is a time where you remember all of the atrocities, you know, for the past, you know, 20 years or so, two decades, you've been suffering at the hands of these people. Now you've captured them. You have every right to punish them, yet you decide to forgive them. Exactly. You don't have an example of that in history. Yeah. Like, to... to and. And in a way that it's been done, and in the manner that it was, you know, done, it's it's some something that, and, and that shows you that at the very heart of it, it was not compulsion that converted these people. It's, and I think this is the second caliph of the community said that people that are forced to convert are not going to give their lives for you. Mm. That they, they, there is a deeper conviction that these people have for for them to sacrifice everything that yeah for that, you to sacrifice that they stand for. You have to really believe in something, right? Mm. You gotta truly understand it. But I was just going back to your point of fear, right? Fear, I believe, and I think it's well understood that fear comes from a lack of understanding, mm-hmm. right? If you don't understand something, or if you are something is unknown to you, you're most likely default. You you'll fear it. You're like, oh, I don't know what's gonna like. Why do people fear the future, right? They yeah. get they get worried about the future because they don't know what's gonna happen or whatever it is it, it's usually come from a lack of understanding or limited understanding and i think that the, the example that you gave the danish um mm-hmm. political party uh leader um you know it's once you actually try to make a genuine effort um to understand islam you will truly start to see uh its beauty its um it's just simplicity that just makes your life so much better and uh, i know you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's easy for me to sit here and say that having having grown up and being taught all of the different things and and being yeah. able to study and understand it but yeah i just encourage anyone listening who has any doubts about islam to just you know contact contact us we can help mm. you with it but we'll give you re- reading material but you know do your own research learn about it I, I promise you you will you will see um how beautiful and how much of a peaceful religion it is and that it would never ever condone these terrorist acts absolutely and with that i do want to play a short clip uh, you know for the benefit of our listeners and that is um 
that is His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, basically answering a question where he was asked, what is the Ahmadiyya viewpoint on you know, extremi- uh, extremist Muslim groups? Islamic teachings are of love, affection, and peace. These are not mere words, but are, in fact, a reality. Let me make it absolutely clear that those who tarnish the name of Islam through their evil acts are motivated solely by their own personal and selfish interests. And let me also make it absolutely clear that Islam has no link to extremism, terrorism, or severity. I mean, it can't get clearer than that. To you know, to 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 be very honest, um, and I think I think people that see Muslims, you know, in 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 day to day life, you know, whether in their workplace, you know, they see how they behave, how these pe- these you know pe- pe- people are, and I think that's why the the emphasis from the community's perspective I've always seen from from His Holiness has been to to show that you're a Muslim. You don't mm. need, you don't just say it. Right yeah. and show it, and your and, actions, and should, your show actions should show what 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 you what what you truly are. You know what 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 you truly stand for, and this is something that's you know that's very important. Um, and he always tells parents, you know, when asked a question of you know how do how should we, um, you know, do the upbringing of our children in, in the society that we live in, he said just be an example for them. They imitate more than they listen. So these 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 you know this this advice is is essential. Uh, you know, for us, and, and and specifically from a community that 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 suffers till today um, from this extremism, right? From this idea, and, and majority of the Muslims, I was saying, you know, are the reason are the, the the reason that they they are suffering is because they don't stand with these people. They don't they don't accept them, and and, and they they utterly reject them as being you know as having to do anything to do with Islam. So I think that should be enough for people to actually realize that look. These, you know, that Islam is not a religion of uh, terrorism. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's actually much more, um, you know, deeper uh, an, an understanding of that faith for why people accept it. But with that, I mean, we do want to go to uh, one of the pre-record uh, that we did um, with re- with regards to this topic. Uh, we, 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 I think, we interviewed Sarhang Hamsa, Ham, Hamasaid, uh, who sp- spoke on the topic. Um, you know this 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 tall topic that we're just discussing now. Uh, Sar Sarhang Hamasaid, uh, who's a director of Middle East programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace (USIP) in Washington D.C., and he's also you know a regular lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute on the subjects of ISIS and challenges to uh, governance in uh, in Iraq, and and is featured in events and and of course briefings on Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Middle East. So here's someone who's an expert in this. We'll be listening to him now. Joining us today here on the Draft Talk Show is Sarhang Hamasaid. He's the director of the Middle East programs at the United St- uh, U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. He's also a regular lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute on the subjects of ISIS and challenges to governance in Iraq and is featured in events and briefings on Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and the Middle East. Sarhang, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the Draft Talk Show. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, in one of your publications, you mentioned that ISIS is a problem of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If I can ask you, what can be done to ensure that the threat of ISIS can be reduced and that it doesn't become the problem of tomorrow? Well, to prevent ISIS from becoming the problem uh, of tomorrow, uh, there is a need for collective action in three areas. 
uh, first, uh, to continue the fight uh, against ISIS to prevent its organizational spread. Uh, there is a need to do that in Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere. Africa is a primary focus of expansion uh, for ISIS uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Second uh, area is to address the human legacies that the conflict has left behind, and that is uh, in the form of the tens of thousands of fighters in the prisons um, of Iraq and northeast Syria. Uh, some estimates put them about um, uh, 30 to 40,000 between both countries. There are also uh, tens of thousands of people who are either families of ISIS members or are perceived to be affiliated with ISIS. Uh, Al-Hol camp in northeast Syria uh, is probably the most high uh, profile and complex case uh, where it's housing uh, nearly 60,000 people from over 50 nationalities. Uh, the largest number are from Iraq, and then the Syrians are the second largest uh, population. And the third uh, area of uh, attention and action is basically addressing the political and government and economic uh, uh, and social conditions uh, uh, that created this space and enabling environment for ISIS to resonate with some communities or that ISIS exploited uh, uh, to advance um, and now for its survival. Hmm. Again, Iraq and uh, Syria will be on the top of the list to make sure that they do not make a comeback there. All right. Now, many displaced people because of ISIS are seen to be affiliated or assumed to be affiliated with the group. Do we really see such a trend that people join ISIS as a result of their displacement? I know that groups such as these, they prey on the vulnerability of people. But if that's the case, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, the answer to that question um, is different. Uh, pre-military defeat of ISIS and mm. post-military defeat of ISIS. Pre-military defeat of ISIS, when there are populations uh, living under ISIS control, um, they were forced and they, they were under the control of the organization. Uh, post-military defeat of ISIS, there is not uh, much information about people in displacement joining ISIS because of their displacement per se. However, such vulnerability exists for those who are um, not affiliated with ISIS and are now in a whole camp in, uh, or in areas of Syria and Iraq where they live or these people live in isolation in poor communities where they lack jobs, uh, education, protection. So if doors of access to community, economic opportunity, and a better life is shut, then joining ISIS or other armed groups would not be a choice for these people, rather a fourth condition uh, in most cases. So in, in those cases, I mean, um, it, it is these displaced refugees who have felt the brunt of the of, of these wars and the violence um wh- why then make such an easy assumption about them uh well the those assumptions about who is perceived to be isis um it really depends on context and who is viewing them as such yeah uh, in iraq uh, most of these assumptions are directed at people from the sunni arab population and that's done because uh, for example, from the perspective of the Shia, they would say, okay, in Iraq, uh, those areas produced the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein, they produced Al-Qaeda and then ISIS, and therefore, the possibility of them being ISIS is higher. Uh, 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 or, the, for some people say, because some of these people lived under ISIS, 
therefore they may not have accepted them instead of fighting them. Uh, in the context of uh, Syria, it's a little bit more nuanced and more complex. Uh, ISIS is more free of uh, ranging and condensing operations compared to Iraq. So the vulnerability of who is ISIS and who is not, who may be signing up to them, is less established uh, compared to, uh, uh, to Iraq. Now, you mentioned the Al-Hol camp um, uh, in, in, you know, just very recently. I want to ask you about, about that camp, which, as you mentioned, is located in northern Syria, is, correct me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's for those individuals who, who have been displaced yeah, from, from, from ISIS. What is the stigma attached to this camp, and, and why are countries not doing anything about it? Why, why are they not helping? Yeah, so the stigma uh, around Al-Hol is that uh, those people who are uh, in Al-Hol are seen uh, uh, by most as uh, families of ISIS Mm. members, Mm. uh, or they are seen as outright ISIS. Therefore, uh, the population, the communities who they are from, the country they are from, perceive them to be dangerous uh, and uh, presenting a risk if they come back. Uh, so governments uh, and communities think it's better to leave them there and not deal with that risk. However, the situation needs a little bit more uh, nuanced look to understand, um, to, uh, to understand, to destigmatize and offer solutions. Uh, more than half of the population in Al-Hol are children below the age of 15. Uh, they are victims and need help not to be left in isolation and leave them as easy targets for ISIS. So, again, that there, you cannot label everybody as ISIS. That's just a, a, a big group. Uh, many of the women who are uh, in al Hol are in similar situation where they did not choose their husbands, they did not choose the life, uh, the life that they were forced into, uh, uh, but now uh, they are perceived to be ISIS. In fact, uh, they are not. Um, recently, there has been um, uh, some move on this. Um, uh, basically, the Central Asian countries, have successfully returned many of their citizens. Iraq, uh, in the last year and a half, um, has returned about 4,000 of its citizens out of 30,000, so there's still a long way to go. Some other countries uh, have started to, to, take, uh, to take some of their citizens, but a lot more work needs to be done mm. and breaking the problem into segments and destigmatizing. Um, uh, so the stigmatizing is a way to do that. Another work that you talk about that needs to be done is the, is, you know, and which is quite crucial, is the security of those camps, um, and that is, is taken seriously because so, so that ISIS can access them and you know radicalize or coerce these displaced people to, to to joining them. What are the practical ways of achieving this if countries are not helping? Well, uh, improving the security of the perimeter of the camps uh, and within the camps are uh, key to prevent ISIS from being able to uh, access them, smuggle people in, smuggle people out, Mm. uh, as it has happened. Um, uh, It it, it helps to preventing people from being killed or hurt, as it has happened. Many inside the camp uh, uh, fear uh, to sleep at night, uh, afraid to interact and receive help um, uh, uh, from uh, NGOs. Um, uh, but ultimately, the best solution is to get uh, these people out of our hole towards some sort of final solution. Ideally, 
return uh, and reintegrate to, uh, into their communities if that's possible, or some other arrangement that would not keep them uh, in this co- context of vulnerability to, radicalize, uh, to radicalization. After security vetting, uh, community dialogue, support to female-headed households, uh, psychosocial support to them and to their children, education for the children are areas of need that could help with these return and reintegration, but also with ensuring the longer-term security that those people have a path at life hmm. and not uh, kept in isolation and vulnerability. Wonderful. Sarhang Hamasai, thank you very much for your time, sir. Great to talk to you, and uh, thank you very much for, for joining us here on The Draft Time Show once again. Pleasure. Thank you. So this was Sarhang Hamasaid. As you can tell from the interview, um, you know, his expertise in this sub sub subject, and is is the reason why um, he you know he's a regular lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute on the subjects of ISIS and 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 challenges to gov- governance in in Iraq and uh, you know Syria, Yemen, and you know all of these other places. Um, you know, talking about you know ISIS and you know the threat we've you know we've explained and we've mentioned you know. Numerous programs we speak about the, the the Islamic standing on terrorism, and our majority of the Muslims completely rejected. Um, and now the question of you know ISIS, you know having an army, uh, or, or, or ISIS has an army in waiting, you know says the U.S. Um, you know ISIS, they say, you know has an army in waiting in 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 prisons and and, and displacement camps across Iraq and Syria. And the American military has has also warned um, in its annual report to to the challenge the group still you know presents across the mid Middle East. Uh, you know there are about twenty thousand ISIS fighters and leaders in detention in Iraq, and further ten thousand in Syria. The U.S. Central Command report said on on top of that there are twenty five thousand children in camps like a whole facility in northeast Syria who are potential next generation of ISIS. Um, now, how is it that 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 one? Because I think one of the main things is is the fact that you can't change the mentality of those that have already been recruited. You know, they are um, they're brainwashed. Yeah, they they are you know um, mature human beings who who've who've taken that decision. But for the children, and I've seen some of these interviews right at these camps. One thing is you know frustration that that they're living in these situations and, and, and the mothers are feeding this information to their children that you need to take revenge for your father and all of these things. Mm. You know, and, and a lot of the people that are going there to help them, and I've seen this in, in, in some in, even the interviewer was threatened. Like we're, we're gonna do this to you, we're gonna do this to you. A child is saying that, ten, mm. twelve years old. So that tells you that a lot of work needs to happen there as well. Right? In in in, in these camps. And especially if if Muslim scholars, you know, are are appointed you know who they're the only ones that can reverse that because they're not going to listen to you know a therapist from a from from a western country speaking mm. about you know islam is islam is that doesn't promote that whereas if they are you know people their own people you know who speak their language and understand their culture speak you know speak to the children and and you know and and they, you may have to take hard measures if you see that you know certain mothers are, are not complying and what would you do? I would you, now that that's that that's the question for the government to ask answer. Would they take those children away from the from 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 the mothers? Because yeah. we, we we see in this country, don't don't we, with yeah. regards to um, you know uh, the social care, 
that you know if there is some if, if there's a harm being done to a child that child is then take, taken away so what what is your view on that i mean well it's like you know there are about 25,000 children in camps like the al whole um facility in northeast syria who are the potential next generation of isis mm-hmm. you know like these kids are growing up in very difficult circumstances mm. they are like you know we can comfortably go to the police if something if, yeah. if someone attacks us we can go and report it to the police or you know there's not bombs going off thankfully like you know just randomly just while we're out and about or you know in the middle having uh, you know um eating at a restaurant with friends right so they're mm. in a very difficult situation and i think that like as you mentioned before is down to education and it's this misunderstanding mm-hmm. and you know these you said about go get revenge for your father i think that like it's because these people are experiencing these really difficult situations that they are in a mental state where they can be manipulated and they can yeah. be influenced and it's about trying to get rid of the the brainwashers the who are themselves brainwashed <laughs> but you know it's just no, the, the 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 point i'm trying to make is, is is that it can only be done at that age you know i, I don't know if i agree with that necessarily mm. because i've you know i've uh, i've i've worked a little bit in this space as well and okay. like you know um i've met people who have come out of that life whether it's any form of extremism whether mm. it's far uh, anti right um far right, far right um uh, or whether it's islamist you know like it's it's um there are people who have gone in there experienced it and wow, walked right. away like mm. you know and been remorseful actually genuinely remorseful and mm. then working with other children and other people who are trying to actually make a change for positive true so i do think that they yes i agree that that, that the problem starts when they're young and that they mm. should be that is an easier time to deal with it yeah. but ultimately they just lack education they've been brainwashed mm. and I, i get where you say get your point to the point where you're obviously the older you get the more conviction you have in your views mm. the more difficult you know as we get older we yeah, get yeah, more yeah. stuck in our ways it's it's simple isn't it right mm. I, th- i think but you're right it, it, I, i think it goes both ways but my whole thing is is why let someone experience that why let it why let him commit a, a, atrocities for him to then decide because oh, yeah. they are, because there are numerous there are hundred there are you know many thousand that are in these prisons who have killed people are very remorseful what do we do with that remorse hmm. you know that's not going to bring the, someone's family back yeah you're getting my point so i think from that perspective islam is very very um strict because you know taking a life of someone is not a it's not you know it, it's not something that that can be forgiven uh, apart f- apart from the you know from the family itself right mm. so and of course you know islam speaks about p- punishment as well as forgiveness and 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 and, and 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 in both of this it takes away the personal and en- and en- enmity aspect it says reformation should be at the core of it if punishment brings about reformation in society and that that's why there are harsh punishments in in place right um and that's that is, that is why the re- that, that 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 is the reason why you don't see in middle eastern countries there 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 is much less crime because they know the punishment is harsh 
You see, right. I I think that that's really important, and I think because the thing is, is that what you're saying? You gotta here, have a de- 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 you gotta have a deterrent. Yeah, it's you know? but, but like what I really liked about what you said is, is punishment should never ever be for the sake of revenge or for the sake of like you know just mm, hurting that individual because yeah. they hurt someone else. It should be always about reformation, mm-hmm. and that should be at the core of any sort of punishment. Yeah. I agree. I mean, we do have another pre-record that you wanted to play. We want uh, that we we had interviewed Matteo Colombo, who works as a researcher as uh, Clean Gendio, Gendio's Conflict Research Unit. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, he's part of its uh, Middle Eastern team focusing on political Islam and the rule, um, uh, political Islam and the the, you know, the rule of law and the political economy of Egypt and, Lib- and, and Libya. He has conducted highly high-quality confidential research projects for NATO and the World Bank on the security uh, landscape in Iraq. Um, We will be listening to him now. So joining us today here on the Drive Time Show is Matteo Colombo. Matteo works as a researcher at the uh, Klangendale Conflict Research Unit. He is part of its Middle Eastern team, focusing on political Islam, the rule of law and political economy of Egypt and Libya. He has conducted high-quality confidential research projects for NATO and the World Bank on security landscape in Iraq. Matteo, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, that's our pleasure. Um, so we're going to go straight ahead and ask you, what is the ultimate goal for ISIS? Well, at the moment, uh, uh, the ultimate goal is actually uh, to survive and to try to maintain its relevance in uh, in Iraq uh, and Syria as well. Uh, so the organization uh, got uh, quite some... Uh, issues lately because of course its leadership was heated uh, they have less capacity than before to conduct uh, large scale attacks especially outside uh, uh, these two countries mm-hmm. but still uh, we we call in the article it's a stubborn threat because it still exists and it still operates and uh, because of that it is still a relevant uh, um, issue in in some part of the Iraq especially in the north Mm-hmm. And the ultimate goal is actually to to resist to you know maintain its presence its presence in in these areas and when conditions will allow eventually go back uh, uh, you know as a as a relevant organization in this uh, in this part of the world. Yeah. Yes. And um, how do you think that ISIS pursuing its goal? How is that different to the terrorism tra- uh, strategy employed by Al Qaeda? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, the the terrorist organization is actually working a little bit different. Uh, Al Qaeda is uh, mostly focusing on other areas. First of all, mostly in uh, in Africa, partially in India, and. Uh, so it's less uh, kind of uh, present in the Middle East, while uh, uh, this, the, the so-called Islamic State is still, uh, you know, present in uh, in its historical core, especially as I said in Iraq and uh, and Syria, mm-hmm. and it's still kind of play more as a local organization. So what they are trying to do is to have some sort of influences in in the area they had been uh, there before, uh, when they really had uh, a territorial controls on these areas, and mm-hmm. to influence uh, as much as possible the local population. So lately, we have seen uh, quite a lot of attacks, especially on uh, security forces like policemen and so on, but mm-hmm. also on uh, civilians and the uh, normal citizen uh, to maintain uh, some sort of influence. So the, the idea is to, to, to hide uh, as much as possible from uh, Iraqi 
and international uh, security forces to have, who that are actually targeting uh, this organization. But on the other hand, they maintain some sort of informal influence, like uh, sort, sort of organized crime, right? That they are not really officially there, but they still can uh, make their influence. Uh, they can still have an influence on everyday life of people living in the area that uh, this, this organization is still operating, which are mostly the north of Iraq, the east of Syria, mostly in the desert area. Yeah. And some small villages, especially in the area of Kirkuk, where um, the organization is particularly present, and uh, it it makes feel its presence in the in the villages uh, around uh, the area of Kirkuk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. And also, how and why is Iran helping Iraq fight the ISIS terrorists? Well, um, Iran is actually uh, providing assistance. Uh, uh, for many reasons. So the first one is that, uh, of course, Iran has been one of the countries that have fought against uh, this organization in the past, and it is also supporting the the Iraqi government uh, to do so. Of course, Iran does it uh, because it has its interest. So uh, it is a way to maintain the the um, uh, the influence in Iraq. And maintaining the influence for Iran means to uh, maintain its network of uh, armed groups that are operating more or less uh, directly under its. Uh, uh, its support, uh, and they try to, you know, to maintain the presence, to have uh, the influence uh, uh, in the internal in the internal organization. So Iran, it is of course fighting, but it's also doing it because uh, it has its own uh, interest in the area, and they they want to maintain uh, as much as possible their presence on the ground, both in Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and also, there was a report that came out by the U.S. Central Command. They said that ISIS has a army in waiting. So there are about twenty thousand ISIS fighters and leaders in detention in Iraq, and further ten thousand in Syria. Um, so, what does this mean? How serious is this a threat? Well, this is a, this is another problem because uh, most of these people have are living in these camps. So these camps uh, tend to be very crowded. It's really difficult. To, uh, to kind of have a, a control of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the risk is that uh, some operatives, some fighters who are actually not uh, in detention can uh, assault these camps and allow some of these fighters to escape and uh, go back to, to fighting as they, they did in the past. Mm-hmm. But the main issue is that when you have this concentration of people in the same place, uh, it's really also difficult to get them to change their ideas in a way, right? They tend to reinforce each other and create this kind of echo chamber in which there is a lot of resentment and, and a lot of, uh, of problems uh, related to that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a bit of, this is a problem that is not, really being solved and uh, European countries, for example, with foreign fighters are not uh, really taking a clear stance on what to do with that. They do it um, in in limited form, but yeah. it is a risk because uh, as long as you have these people in these camps, uh, you have a potential that they might go back to fight uh, in the future. And um, do you know how long they stay in these detention camps? Like you mentioned, well, uh, in a way, indefinitely, because uh, you have uh, you have uh, people who are um, who had been arrested. That uh, I mean, they they are not really uh, having a possibility to go back to their normal life. While you have case by case situation, but uh, for those who had you know committed crimes and they really were uh, uh, in in a way very influential in the in the former organization uh, uh, power structure, then. You know, you have this kind of uh, detention that will stay as much as as possible. While with others, of course, there is a case by case situation because some had, you know, they were less involved. They had to collaborate in a way or in another. They were influenced and so on. But uh, 
the, the issue is that uh, there is not really uh, an idea of what to do in the future, what to do after, and this is uh, uh, this is a problem uh, because uh, yeah, as long as uh, they are most in um, in the area controlled by Kurdish armed groups, as long as they can keep them there, it works. But yeah, that doesn't mean that they will do it indefinitely. And uh, you know, you need to have a strategy to 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 think what to do in the future, which is definitely not there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understood. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thanks. 020-868-7878 is the number to call. We only have about 10 minutes to go. We're discussing ISIS and whether they are still a threat. So uh, we were listening to um, Matteo Colombo, you know, who is a researcher uh, in conflict research unit Um now he's, you know, you, you you can tell from the conversation, you know, that took place, uh, you know, that he, his expertise uh, is in Middle Eastern, uh, you know, side of things, focusing on, you know, political Islam, uh, the rule of law, and the, you know, the political economy of Egypt and Libya, and there's much, you know, uh, there's there's a lot there that one can learn, uh, isn't it? Definitely, I think that. Um I think look, ISIS will, with any organization like this, ISIS will like have some sort of threat of coming back. And I th- mm-hmm. feel like um, it will always be kind of there because they... They've had such a stronghold and yeah, so many prisoners and... And people you know, just get manipulated by these things, right? And there's always like some sort of, you know, t- probably to this day, there are some people who still believe in the Nazi party, you know? Like there's, there, there is these types of things. But mm. ultimately, um, the fact that it's, um, you know, not been in the mainstream news for a long time. Like I generally, like when I, when I first heard about this topic, I was like, what, ISIS? Like mm, exactly. a long time ago, like, you know. And mm. um, so for me, I think that... Um, they don't represent Islam, and ultimately, personally, you know, they won't be successful in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can continually, like you know, we can have these uh, discussions about yeah, how yeah. Islam and terrorism are are not compatible in any way. But like, it's, I think we it bears repeating often that mm. you know, Islam does not teach violence. ISIS are not. Uh, representing yeah. Islam and are not following the teachings of Islam. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I did wanted to mention, and you know, with regards to chapter seven, verse fifty-seven, where Allah Almighty says, "And create not disorder uh, in, in the earth, and after it has been set in order." So Islam, you know, in a way, advocates three steps against terrorism. Uh, first is to give an excellent moral upbringing to all Muslims so that they become upright, just, moral, kind and loving people, thereby ensuring that they never disrupt the peace of others. Whenever the peace is disrupted, to reason and argue with the evildoers and sincerely pray for them, pray for them to make them change their ways. If all reasoning fails, then to join forces with all good people to combat the mischief mongers until peace has been restored, but always keeping the dictates of justice in view. And the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, always aligned, you know, uh, its its view with the Islamic teachings, you know, categorically rejecting uh, and condemning every act of terrorism. Um, Islam does n- in no way provide any cover or justification for any acts of uh, violence, uh, be it committed by an individual or group or a government even. 
no true religion can sanction, sanction violence and bloodshed of innocent people, women and children in the name of God. Indulgence in terrorism, you know, even in the name of you know, noblest objectives, uh, is completely incompatible you know, with the teachings of Islam. And, you know, this was something that was, was explained by, by the fourth caliph of the Hamdi Muslim community in his book called Murder in the Name of Allah. So there's so much resources out there. There's so many books and researches, research have been written there. I think one of, one of the things that we've seen lately, uh, and I think you've probably seen as on social media, is, is people actually visiting Muslim countries. The Qatar yeah. uh, World Cup and, and, and how people actually experienced these mm. these cultures and realize that these you know these people are very welcoming, they're very friendly, very safe, uh, very safe. Uh, you know, and um, it goes to show you know that 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 the narrative that that's often uh, you know presented in in front of us is is totally false. Definitely, and yeah, with with ISIS, I think the um, the the conversation around. Um, the caliphate. Do you remember how yeah, it yeah. was very like focused on? You know, there's a new leader, and you know, if yep. if an organization is going to have a, a new le- Islamic leader or something, yeah. I think that they would be very hard pressed to find a better leader than. Absolutely, uh, I mean, it's wonderful point that you raised, but you raised it at, at the end of the program <laughs> <laughs> because you see, the point is you yeah. can't forcefully appoint an Islamic caliphate. It's part of a prophecy. That is going is is going to happen, and it's so depressing for me personally to see every Instagram post that speaks about caliphate. You know, you've got you've got these guys sitting on horses, and you know they they're going to conquer these lands and stuff like that. And I was thinking, mate, you're living in a nuclear era, right? How do you even think it's possible for you to be on horses and conquering lands? Like, you know, we're not. (laughs) You know, it makes no sense. And that is one of the reasons where, you know, the idea of Mahdi even, you know, historically speaking, if you go 100 years back, right, if, if, if you do research of how mm. the, the, the Mahdi, the word Mahdi, in what connotation it was being used. It was being used in the same context that Caliphate is being used now. And the reason being is, is because at that time there, were, there was someone, you know, in, in Dongola, and, and it's famously known as the Mahdi of Dongola, right? Um, and pe- 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 people can search this up. Uh, you know who, you know who basically you know uh, stood 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 against the uh, you know the rulers at that time mm. and tr- started conquering lands and you know in the manner that people actually thought is going to happen, but by at, at the end it didn't succeed. But people realized that these people, um, you know, um, that the and understanding that majority of the Muslims have with regards to caliphate is is erroneous. I mean, it, it, yeah. it makes no sense. So so we would always say to to read Surah Nur. You know, chapter um, I think Surah Nur, Surah Nur is chapter. Which chapter? Do you know which chapter it is um, of, of the Holy Quran? Checked. I think it's chapter twenty fourth, twenty fourth chapter of the of the Holy Quran. Yeah. Um, you know where it speaks about uh, caliphate, mm-hmm. right? And and, and that God is, God Almighty, Allah Those who do uh, good works, who believe in God and, and do good works, that He would establish caliphate among them. Mm. As he had done before, right. yeah? and what's the purpose of it? So, so that he would give, he would give strength to the faith. Yeah, that he would remove, um, you know, uh, insecurity, mm. and, and 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 replace it with security, and he would establish faith. Yeah, right. Now, this was done in diff- diff- different times, and you know, in different way. At the, at the time of a prophet, 
there was a need to defend yourself. There was a need to, you know, to uh, to defend Islam in a way, and and it was essential for Islam's progress to defend themselves, hmm. right? A- and that's the reason why, you know, that Islam had to pick up sword, or the companions had to defend themselves. Other- otherwise, the religion would have been diminished. And we f- we know that from you know from 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 the Islamic history, the amount of years of persecution and all of these things. So so it makes you realize. Having studied Islamic history, having studied you know the the Quranic verses, you know the fundamentals of faith, it puts everything into perspective that this idea of of uh, you know this this caliphate that be conquering lands and doing you know these things, it makes no sense at all. Yeah, and the other thing is is that with a little bit of research, you can realize that. It's not just about picking up the sword. Like people focus so much on picking up the sword, mm. but okay, look at the actions that transpired after that, right? Mm. Okay, did they go around, you know, uh, defiling women or the uh, surroundings? Like you weren't even allowed to cut down a tree, mm. right? Like that's the intru- instructions, right? Like they, mm. so that's. I think that with anything, you can look at a rule or you can look at a verse or whatever, and you can take it in whatever yeah. context, but. To see the actions and the actual what happened afterwards, how the situation was dealt with, mm. you know, the the care for the environment. Absolutely, and that's why you I think I, I I do want to go to um, one of the last audios I want to play with regards to, you know, how we can we make people understand about terrorism. You see, Islamic teachings has nothing to do with terrorism. Allah Taala says very clearly, categorically in the Holy Quran that the killing of a person is akin to the killing, killing of the whole of mankind. And saving a life of one person is as you have saved the life of the whole of the mankind. Right? Then Holy Quran says that killing a person without reason will t- take you to the hell. Right? The Holy Quran says killing a believer will uh, lead you to go to hell. What Muslims are doing? Muslims are killing each other. So, all those who are killing each other, according to the teaching of the Holy Quran and according to the narrations of the Holy Prophet they will go to hell. And then Islam says, that to spread Islam, you should not use sword. So this was His Holiness speaking about the how we can make people un, under understand, uh, you know, about Islam, um, and you know about this this issue of terrorism. And we've now come to the end of the program. Definitely, and we want to thank our producers for the first show, um, Aisha Nasim and Deba Nasir, and for the second show, Munahil Nasir and Kafia Ahmed. From us, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.